The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we're joined by Roland Oliphant, senior foreign correspondent at The Telegraph, who calls us from the Donbass, where he's been reporting on the Russian offensive in the region. We also discuss Russia's looming default and get the latest on the economic blockade of Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 26th of May, day 92. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, economics reporter, Louis Ashworth, and Roland Oliphant, who's on the ground in the Donbass. I started by asking Roland for the latest from the East, where Ukrainian fighters are outnumbered and stretched by a determined Russian attack. So I'm basically, I'm in the Donbass, um, which is, I'm sure everybody knows by now, is a coal-producing area of East Ukraine that straddles the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, and is where the Russians are putting in their big, big battle of encirclement. Um, what have I seen? The, the Russians are making progress, um, and you can audibly hear the Ukrainian defense is creaking at the moment and in some places, frankly, kind of breaking. So um, there's two main areas of operation. There's um, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which is right at the eastern point of the salient. Um, and there's a very, very narrow neck of land still connecting that um, to the rest of Ukrainian territory. The Russians are pushing to cut the road. Uh, they apparently... Um, I think the day before yesterday, they got some units onto that road and they were able to briefly set up checkpoints before they were pushed back. Um, and that's a real, real worry for the Ukrainians because um, uh, you're, fa- you're facing a really difficult situation. It's either stay and fight and end up in, a, in an encirclement like Mariupol or, or it's try and pull back. And frankly, I mean, the road is, is, is covered by artillery. It's a very scary place to be at the foot of that road, quite honestly. Um, so any attempt to pull back is is going to come into trouble. They're also pushing um, further in. If you, you imagine this salient um, further out, there's two other prongs. One to the south, to the south, um, a place called um, Svetlodarsk. Um, so the Ukrainians pulled back from there, and the Russians moved into it, and are now pushing onto the next town up the road. Um, and they're also pushing south from into a place called Liman. Um, and I was quite near Liman yesterday really really heavy artillery battle going on and you can see um you know if you stand up on the ridges you can see for miles this this the front line is kind of defined by rising smoke from these artillery barrages um the russians are meant to have been they're in liman they're in part of liman they're likely to take it quite soon and that is closing another jaw um of this of this salient if you think of a you know a wolf's mouth um towards the end there's two more teeth coming in and, and both of those thrusts kind of look like they're directed towards the town of Bakhmut um, which is the main logistics center it's the end of the road of life to, to Severodonetsk so Bakhmut, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk these are going to be um, the next battlegrounds depending on how far this offensive goes but yeah I mean the shelling is audible almost anywhere in this um, in, in, in this landscape in this salient. 
And when you're speaking to Ukrainian civilians and soldiers, what do they tell you? What's the mood like there? Uh, everyone's different. You know, I mean, some people are quite frank about how frightened they are. I mean, I was, I was talking to a guy in a, in a Ukrainian mortar platoon, um, not exactly on this front, a bit further up towards Izum the other day. And he said, look, like, I mean, I've literally shat myself many times. He said, everyone is terrified. It is just horrible because it's, it's this artillery war and just, you're just locked down. You can't move. You can't raise your head. It's just shells coming in. Bang, bang, bang. Um, you know, he was talking about lying there pissing in a bottle because you can't move. Um, you can't go outside um, while this is going on. Um, so that that's kind of physically terrifying. Um, there is this sense there was, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, people were talking about, well, the great Ukrainian counteroffensive is coming. There is a sense the Russians have the initiative now. So I think there's definitely a sense of nervousness around here. Um, I mean, for civilians, it's such a strange mix. I mean, there's, there's people by now, the people who are still here are often people who either can't leave because they feel they haven't got any money. They haven't got anywhere to go. They've got relatives to look after, or they just don't want to leave because, you know, they can't really imagine something bad happening to them. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I spoke to a, a woman, a woman who's, no, her, it was her daughter's apartment was, was blown up by a Russian airstrike. Um, which I think had probably missed some military target in the town. It took out this entire block of flats. Miraculously, no one was killed. And she, she'd just been visiting her daughter's apartment um, to check on it because her daughter's already evacuated, uh, make sure the gas is off, all that kind of thing. She left, and straight away she hears this big bang. She thinks, oh, another shell's gone off somewhere in town, goes around the corner. The big bang was the flat she just left, getting blown to bits. Um, and she's still not leaving. She's she, Her and her husband were collecting all the... Um, the furniture and taking it over to their own house um but you know quite fatalistic what will be will be um so it's a real it's a real mix it's a it's a it, it's a strange kind of thing and the more the shelling goes on of course the more people get used to it right it becomes like the weather um there's a degree to which people become accustomed to, to loud bangs going on nearby weirdly I'm sure, Dom and Louis have some questions, but just one final one from me what would it mean for the ukrainians to, to lose this battle and what would it mean for the russians to win I think for the Russians, is quite politically important. So, you know, Vladimir Putin has publicly stated his goal as the liberation of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. If they win Siversky Donetsk, or Severna Donetsk, um, I'm getting the town mixed up, and Lysychansk, that, that is the last kind of toenail of Ukrainian territory in Luhansk. So they will then claim we have liberated the Luhansk People's Republic. Um, but that's only a partial victory. Next on the list is uh, the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, so politically important for the Russians, um, important in morale terms for the Ukrainians as well. Um, the Ukrainians are, they're currently basically trading space for time, I think. They're kind of pulling back. But how long can you do that? Um, and, and although the Ukrainians have that advantage, they can retreat and, and try to inflict as much um, as much attrition on the Russians as possible as they go. You know, how far can you retreat? And if there's another encirclement and another kind of Mariupol, um, in Severodonetsk, you know, what is that going to go to public morale? Um, how many soldiers are going to be lost in this battle? Is it going to affect Ukraine's ability to operate and fight? Um, I think that was the Russian objective at the beginning. And the truth is we don't really know because we don't really know exactly how many men and how much equipment both sides are losing. Well, thanks, Roland. Um, Dom and Louis, do you have any questions for Roland having listened to that? Yes, please. Uh, 
Hi, Roland. Uh, good to hear from you, mate. Um, can you give us an idea about the geography there? So, so if this pocket is closed by by Russia, are there natural geographic features that means they will they will stop um, you know, river, rivers, mountains, what have you, or is it largely flat and they're able to push west? I, I, I'm just trying to get an idea of, of of how much further they might be able to exploit any success they're having. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm literally writing a dispatch that is very heavy on on landscape. Um, that wasn't planned, I can assure. Oh, this is a, that was perfect. And and I'm doing another one. There's two elements of landscape, and I'm doing one now and one and one next week. So, um, on the general aspect of the landscape, so there is. Uh, I think you sometimes hear people talk about the steep. We're out in the steep, and it's all very open. And you might get this impression that it's kind of, you know, snookerboard flat prairie or something it's not it's this um it's kind of big wide rolling valleys um that is is quite open it's heavily agricultural so almost everything is so and between the fields you've got long lines of trees um which are you know very verdant very lush in spring um down in 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 these broad valleys you've got villages rivers lakes towns things like that um so that it is much more open than than up north and the Battle of Kiev and so on. But it's um, I think there was, there was an analysis um, I saw on Twitter which confirmed what I thought, um, which is that the Russians are making the most progress up on those ridges, up on the high ground, right? Because it's easier. Otherwise, you get bogged down in, in urban combat um, lower down. So this breakout they've had from Papasna is is up on those on those ridges. Um, but the main feature that I think is emerging and it's already emerged as kind of the main feature of the battle is the Siversky Donetsk river. Um, which if you look on the map, I mean, it's quite long. It's a tributary of the Don, um, of Rostov on Don over in Russia. And it comes all the way down through Kharkiv region and it kind of is becoming to define this whole battlefield. So you remember you talking, we were talking about the, um, the counteroffensive around Kharkiv, right? The other week. And, and, and the Ukrainians pushed out east, right? And they, they had that. They had, they had one offensive north of the border and the other one east. And the offensive north of the border stopped at the border. And the one of the east, that reached the banks of the Siversky Donetsk, because that's the natural kind of barrier. Um, and further south, downstream, um, there's Severodonetsk, which sits, which is on the east stroke northern bank, um, which the Russians are trying to surround. We've seen all these this talk about... Um, to talk about remember these battles was it two weeks how long ago was it um the pontoon bridges this disaster oh, crikey yeah two two or three weeks just trying to get across the river right uh, that's is that river group wiped out exactly it's the siversky donetsk river and it's taken the russians so long because they've struggled to get across and the ukrainians have made a point of bringing their artillery to bear every time the russians try to cross and and just kind of closer to where i am um we're talking about the battle of liman liman is just on that northern side i think that river it's difficult to get across it's quite wide it's not that deep or, or well dredged um but it's wide um and wild and i think that is emerging if this if we end up in a stalemate i think that is going to emerge as a kind of natural front line separating the two so they're not yet over that river. So even even if they're able to bypass Severodonetsk from the to the south, so if they push west from Papasna, they're still not over that river. Is that what you're saying? Oh uh, no, no. So they're not over the river to the north. So they tried to come over and um, they tried to come over on the northern side of the salient, um, kind of west of Severodonetsk, and that's where they got screwed up, kind of three times, destroyed. 
And after that failure, we got this breakthrough out of Papasna. Now, Papasna is already, that is on the west bank of that river. So on the southern flank, they've already crossed that river, um, which I think is why we're seeing a bit more success for the Russians um, in moving from that direction than, than the encirclement attempt from the north. Thanks. And is there any fear as to why Ukraine was able to knit together these these small local counterattacks into a, a broader counteroffensive in or to the north and the northeast of Kharkiv and and not similar behaviour here? Is it just the, the sheer weight of numbers from the from from Russia? And as, as we've written today, that they've, they're finally getting the combined arms manoeuvre together. But are they two different fights, basically? I think so. I mean, Kharkiv, I think I think one of the advantages the Ukrainians had at Kharkiv is that the Russians had pulled out a lot of men to concentrate on this on this Donbass fight. Um, and so the Ukrainians were able to kind of concentrate their forces and achieve local superiority. Um, and it was the, the Russians who were forced to kind of retreat because they couldn't adequately respond. And down here, I mean, you had, um, oh, was it yesterday? Um, uh, an advisor to President Zelensky basically admitting, look, there's parts of the Donbass front where we are outnumbered seven to one, right? Um, and you had the uh, the governor of Luhansk region, what's left of Luhansk region. He doesn't even have an office anymore. He's working out of a van. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about, quote, insane numbers, unquote, of Russian troops being deployed here. So there's just, I think there's just too many of them. And I think the, the Ukrainians are, they're in trouble because the Russians, it's not just Severodonetsk, right? It's also it's also around Papasna, it's also around Svitlodarsk, it's also around Liman. So there's there's kind of, you know, three or four axes they're having to respond to to kind of prevent breakthroughs. So, you know, they're they're struggling basically um to contain this. Roland, we hear a lot about the weapons and the equipment being sent to to the Ukrainian army from the west. Do you have much of a sense of that on the ground? What what kind of things are they using? Are they getting through? I don't know. I mean, I I saw some Ukrainian artillery up close the other day, but it was old. Um, uh, I think one two two millimeter self propelled howitzers, Soviet ones. Um, Don probably remembers the name, the the, the Gvozda or something. I think they said, um, and uh i saw a, a mortar quite large caliber um i don't know if that was 122 or something and you know this is this is dom stuff right um uh the mortar the mortar platoon did have foreign stuff they were very pleased they had um i think it was italian and czech or polish mortar shells and they were extremely pleased with how quick it was compared to the other stuff to kind of get it out put the fuse on it um and bang you just drop it in and it's ready to go um and they said that was they were very pleased with that or the guy i spoke to was very pleased with that um but these um these m77 howitzers and all of this i i i don't know i haven't personally clapped eyes on any of that stuff yeah i mean the the impression i'm getting talking to folk is firstly every little bit helps i mean they're, they're, they're they're delighted to receive any of this and as the the natures of the equipments have been getting bigger and heavier so the m triple sevens a big one five five millimeter howitzers with a range you know in excess of 30 kilometers then um yeah these are the these are the kind of the natures of the weapons they need to push back in the last couple of days the the uh, ukrainians up to president zelensky up to and including president zelensky have been calling for mlrs so the multiple launch rocket systems so these are the really big very very long long range rocket systems usually self-propelled which means that they they are tracked on a on a sort of tank chassis so they can get into 
into action and and, and just as importantly <clears throat> away from the location very quickly after firing if the um the well the russians as we as we know same with the ukrainians have counter counter battery radar so what that means is they've got they've got radars that can see incoming artillery shells and they just just do the maths work out the physics to to work out where that where that thing was launched from and then if that radar is is linked as it should be to a to a an artillery battery itself then they can they can fire back very very quickly to uh, to the uh, originating uh, the originating point so so self-propelled artillery is is hugely well it, i mean it's almost an act of survival nowadays the m triple sevens actually the, the americans have donated are, are not self-propelled they are they are towed by other trucks so they are very very capable but somewhat limited in that they are not not as mobile but um uh, mortar tubes are slightly more mobile because they, they they are they're much smaller they can just be sort of humped around and chucked on trucks and, and what have you um commensurately smaller caliber generally but uh, but I mean even mortar rounds are, are equally devastatingly effective. So so yeah, I'm not surprised that that, that all these, these the different natures of ammunition, which might on the on the one hand prove as a, a headache for any logistician trying to trying to carry all this stuff forward and make sure the right ammunition gets to the right place, it is all very welcomed by by Ukraine. I just wonder, Roland. I mean, so we were, we were just talking about geography then uh, a little a little while ago. So in in terms of the Luhansk and, and Donetsk oblasts, uh, the, the the borders of those oblasts is that a geographic feature? There's talk of uh, if Russia if Russia takes the whole of the Donbass, so those two oblasts, is there likely to be a natural pause there? Um, possibly because the Russian forces will be exhausted. Um, or, but, and is there a is there a natural geographic feature that they could they could rest up on, and then 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 the world will see if there's if this claim by Putin that it was actually the Donbass all along that he was after, if there was a, if there was any truth in that. Um, I don't. I mean, the short answer is I don't really think that. Um, I mean, a bit bit of bit of local history means Donetsk Basin, but it, it's talking about the coal basin. Um, but that's a, that's an underground geological feature. I mean, the, the Don the Donbass is basically on a on a kind of ridge, but it's a it's one you don't really notice when you're going up it because it's not you know a huge thing. Um, it has got those these these valleys, but we're talking very broad rolling landscape, not um, not anything else. There's, I mean, the road between. I mean, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Dnipro. I mean, it's it's similar kind of country. In fact, some of it's a lot flatter than than it is around here. Um, so my short answer is no. I don't think there is a natural geographic feature. The natural geographic feature is the Dnieper River, right? Um, which we thought at the beginning was, which probably was the, the Russian objective, right? Um, and the Russian, the southern Russian line is anchored on the Dnipro, uh, a place called Vasilivka, um, just south of Zaporizhia. But then the front kind of winds across the steep. Um, along these roads so i mean a natural start it'll be a political decision to stop but i think it's the geography that's 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 going to do it to be honest yeah i just wonder if the if the forces are are tired after all this heavy fighting even though they might have open rolling countryside in front of them they might just be be limited by their own their own stocks of fuel and uh, and all the rest of it and 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 lack of sleep for the for the fighters so i just wonder if they were going to try and move into a defensive position but i guess we'll find out it sounds like we'll find out in the next uh, in the next few days has um, has the town of Lyman, i think that's on the uh, on the river as well has that fallen yet 
Yeah, so that, that's 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 the, the town I was kind of within about five k of that yesterday um, on a little place on the river. Um, I went to a little place on the river because I wanted to do a thing about the river, and I thought it would be a quiet spot, um, and it wasn't really. Um, it was. I think Liman, Liman today, the latest I understand is that the Russians have about half the town. They're already doing house to house searches um, uh, of, of, uh, of people's flats um, looking for stay behind Ukrainians. Um, it's going to fall, I think, in the next. Um, I'm not sure what the latest is from there today, but the fighting there is very intense. Um, the artillery barrages are heavy. Um, so it w- it will go quite soon and it, it is it's in the river valley it's not right on the bank of the river but it is um it's this is a kind of low-lying national park of wetlands um uh, around the river there and liman is just i don't know a mile a mile from the bank or something around there so so basically that would give them that would bring them very close to the um to the northern stroke eastern bank um in that area near slavyansk just one more question from me, Roland, and thank you so much for your time. How do you see this this battle for the Donbass um, evolving and changing over, over the next few days? What are the big flashpoints that our listeners should be should be looking for? I mean, the the, the, the big flashpoint it's 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 Sivsky Donetsk, and Lysychansk. Um, that that pocket right at the end that's the big dramatic thing, and that that's that's where the Russians are really putting the net effort and most pressure to close. But they are also. Um, you know, you want to watch Liman and, and you want to watch, um, you know, Svetogorsk stroke um, Luhanskoye down south of Bakhmut because those those two fangs are, you know, they, they are threatening to get to get to get in further deeper into the salient um, further along. Um, and especially this this thing at Liman, I mean. If you got Liman, you can threaten a place called Siversk, which is probably your 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 only other alternative in and out of Severodonetsk. Um, so those three points are the main the main things to keep an eye on, I think. Well, thank you very much, Roland. Um, obviously, more than welcome to to stay and listen to the rest of the chat and and contribute where where you would like. Can we just um, zoom out from Donbass, um, Louis and Dom? What are the other updates from Ukraine and around the world that we should be aware of today? So the World Economic Forum is still still rumbling on in uh, in Davos, and it was uh, at at the the forum a couple of days ago. You'll remember Henry Kissinger, the the veteran U.S. statesman, made those comments about uh, about Ukraine will need to cede territory for peace, um, less less there'll be any sort of increase in tension, and 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 the, the comments didn't go down well um, in Ukraine, as you as you might imagine. Um, so President Zelensky, in his in his Wednesday night or in his in his nightly address, so last night was talking about this uh, and he just he said a quote he said no matter what the russian state does there's always someone who says let's take its interest into account he said he carried carried on he said it seems that mr kissinger's calendar is not 2022 but 1938 and he thought he was talking to an audience not in davos but in munich at the time um and he's sort of talk, just saying that this is this is appeasement in the in the modern world and and it and it should be resisted the idea he was suggesting that Kissinger's comments were were just a little bit a little bit old, a little bit twentieth century, a little bit clunky, just not just just have run out of speed, and they they might have been appropriate for his time and of his time, but but it but not now. And and President Zelensky referred to Kissinger's family history. I mean, Kissinger had to had to flee Nazi Germany 
as a as a child. And um, President Zelensky said he was 15 years old and he understood everything perfectly. Nobody heard from him then that it was necessary to adapt to the Nazis instead of fleeing them or fighting them. So a very a very powerful rebuttal of 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 um, Kissinger's comments there from President Zelensky, just having absolutely no no truck with this this idea that there's there's a nego- or territory should be negotiated for peace. Uh, and just finally uh, on on Davos. So Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, has been speaking today, and and he uh, from the forum, and he said that Putin's not going to be able. He said Putin can't dictate the peace, and said that he'd already failed in all his strategic uh, aims. And a, a quote here from Olaf Scholz: "Our goal is crystal clear. Putin must not win this war, and I'm content that he will not win it." So, yeah, pretty strong from Olaf Scholz. Again, needs to be backed up by actions. Uh, Germany has been uh, well mild criticism for the last few weeks for for their for their support for Ukraine. But uh, no, Scholz pretty pretty punchy there in Davos today. Thanks, Tom. Um, Louis Ashworth, our economics uh, reporter. Can we turn to you? You've written an interesting piece. That, uh, that, that makes the case that Moscow is on the cusp of its first foreign debt default in a century after the US allowed an exemption permitting Russia to meet its obligations to international creditors to lapse. Um, for those of us who are not um, economics reporters, can you explain this? What's going on? Hi, David. And yeah, thanks for having me on again. Um, I, I feel like with this default stuff, I'm sort of like a commentator in, in a, a tortoise race or something like that because of how, how slowly these, these pieces are moving. Um, when I've come on before, I've spoken about this idea of a sort of engineered um, Russian default. So what we're looking at here is the idea that Russia may fail to, fail to uh, make payments on its foreign debt for the first time in about a century. So the last time it failed to do so was in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Bolsheviks basically re- repudiated uh, all the all the czars' um, debts and said, you know, we, we won't pay these. Um, you know, fast forward 100 years-ish, uh, and we're, we're in a similar situation again. Um, but a lot of things, a lot of things are quite different. Um, w- what's basically happening here is rather than Russia refusing to pay its debts, uh, the United States is effectively making it impossible. So early on uh, in the conflict, when uh, the West was first un- first unleashing a sort of set of sanctions against Russia, one of the things they did was introduce this, this exemption that allowed uh, bond payments to continue. So the uh, p- people who had lent money to Russia could still receive repayments from Russia for, for that lending. That, uh, that exemption uh, was uh, due to lapse on, on Wednesday morning, and there was a lot of uh, questions over whether the US would go ahead with allowing it to lapse. Um, there are arguments in, in both directions. So the argument in favor of it is that engineering a default, um, which is what would effectively happen by, by not extending the exemption, would uh, you know, be catastrophic for Russia's reputation as an international um, borrower. Um, it would have long-term repercussions for Russian corporate borrowing. It would have um, very symbolic effects. Um, and then the arguments uh, in favor of, extens- of, of extending the extension further, the exemption further, uh, were largely that Russia was being forced in order to make these payments to tap into its limited foreign exchange reserves. So there were arguments both ways. We saw on Wednesday that the U.S. has gone with the option of not extending the exemption, which means that effectively as of uh, first thing Wednesday, sort of five o'clock in the morning, London time on, on Wednesday, um, it was no, it's no longer possible for Russia's central bank, uh, its, its, gov- its finance ministry um, and major, major lenders to make payments to, to, Western, or to U.S.-based bondholders. And what this basically means is a default is inevitable. Because there, there will come a time at which uh, at which Russia is 
it has to make has to make payments, probably some sort of coupon payment on on a debt uh, that uh, it simply won't be able to. It'll be you know the computer says no type situation. Uh, realistically, it'll be they'll try and send money to a, a U.S. bank, you know, someone like uh, Citigroup or someone like that, and it simply won't be allowed because of because of the because of the restrictions in place. Um, so it will then enter a grace period, which will be thirty days. Uh, there will be no option during those 30 days to pay in any other way, try as, try as Moscow might, and then it will default. When that happens exactly remains a slightly open question. So we got near to this before in, in April when we thought Russia was going to fail to make payments. And then in the last moment it did, it tapping its reserves. Uh, Russia has payments due on three euro bonds, which are dollar-denominated bonds tomorrow. Uh, it's possible... That those may be the sort of that those may be the, the the kindling for the for the default fire that's going to slowly slowly sort of um, begin over the coming month. Um, but a lot of those bonds are held not by U.S. investors but by investors in Europe and elsewhere in the world, which creates a kind of weird situation because they may well still receive their payments, and in that case, Russia won't default a month from now. Uh, instead, what will happen is we'll have the next tranche of payments, which is June the twenty third, and then there'll be. No ability for Russia to make those payments, presuming things haven't changed between now and then. And then there'll be another 30-day grace period, and then Russia will default in late July. So it's a bit of a bit of a weird situation, and it feels all a little bit academic because effectively the 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 the, the, the damage is kind of there. But um, as I've discussed before, it's there are real significances to a Russian default in terms of it ties the hands of a lot of Western investors in terms of whether they're able to uh, to lend money to to Russia. And more significantly for Russians, Russia's economy, it may dictate whether some investors can lend money to Russian businesses who are much more reliant on the international market for funds. So there are some real effects from this. It is almost certainly going to happen, but it might still be a couple of months from now. Thanks, Louis. That was incredibly comprehensive. Um, would you like to comment on the ongoing story of the, the food crisis caused by uh, the Russian blockade in Ukraine? The Kremlin has said that the West only has itself to blame for, for this. Um, why do they say that? What, what's going on? What's the latest there? Look, I think this is a question that sort of lands in between in between the three of us here in, in some ways. I mean, speaking on the on the economic side, we've obviously seen the huge amount of disruption to global food supply that has occurred both directly as a result of uh, food food products not being able to leave uh, Ukraine, but also the knock-on effects that's had around the world. Uh, India, we discussed uh, last week, had introduced a an export ban on wheat, uh, which took some wheat supply out of the global market. It's now doing the same with sugar as well. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see similar actions taking place in foreign countries. It's a it's a um, sorry, by which I mean sort of foreign countries foreign to to Ukraine and 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 Russia because it's a, quite an easy populist move for a government to do if it's facing a domestic uh, food inflation crisis to say you know we produce this food its price is going up we're going to stop exporting it and attempt to sort of control our market make sure supplies are here and make sure that we put our own people first in terms of who's getting food. Um, so we've spoken before about that effect. Um, th- this has come up a lot with Ukraine because although a lot of Ukrainian uh, production infrastructure is effectively has effectively been taken out of action by the conflict, you know, either it's been destroyed, uh, it's been destroyed intentionally or unintentionally as a result of the conflict, um, it's been rendered uh, inaccessible because of the because of where the front lines have been drawn. 
For various reasons, production has been disrupted at the source, but also Ukraine has not been able to get uh, its food products out of the country because of the Russian blockade um, t- towards sort of the, the, the major Black Sea route that, that you would you would take for to, to, to ship out of Ukraine. Um, we're seeing now uh, this indication from Russia that it's, it would be willing to create naval corridors. Um, this comes a few days after actually um, uh, Zelensky speaking at speaking at Davos said that Ukraine was in talks with some of the Baltic countries, so Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, about the prospect of utilizing their naval routes, so sending sending some products up by land into the Baltic states and then shipping it out from there. Um, I'm not sure if this is exactly a reaction to, reaction to that. I think this is a reaction to a sort of a broader criticism of Moscow that's that's become um, very elevated in recent days over um, over its its blockade. It's difficult to say. Clearly, this is Putin trying to go for an element of a propaganda win because it makes him look like more of a humanitarian if he says we're willing to open up these corridors um, and let this food out. Um, I think the practicalities are somewhat more difficult and I think it's a more cynical move than it looks and this may be an area where Roland and Dom can come in much more productively but it's it's not as simple as simply opening opening a corridor because you then have to also send send ships in and out of that corridor and you have to trust that they're not going to be interfered with and um, that is a an area where we've seen the uh, the Netherlands has suggested that it would be willing to support some some vessels leaving leaving ports to the Black Sea um, it's it's ve- it's a very difficult thing to do practically because you are putting um, you know what would be NATO vessels very close to Russian vessels, and I think that's a very it's a very high risk situation. I mean, it's it's it may be better NATO may consider to leave it as effectively neutralized than to turn it into a tinderbox. Thanks, Louis. As you said, let's bring in Roland and Dom for some comment and analysis on that. Um, Dom, would you like to go first? Yes, this, this idea of, of effectively breaking the naval blockade of the, of the Black Sea, this came up in a, in a conversation on uh, uh, Monday, I think it was, had a, a, a briefing, background briefing from Western officials, and we, we asked this very question, what would it take? This was on the back of the, the suggestion from Lithuania's foreign minister that, that there should be a, a coalition of the willing, <clears throat> somewhat loaded term, but a coalition of the willing to, to try and break this, this naval blockade. He... Lithuanian foreign minister apparently raised it with Liz Truss, and um, and that's where these she didn't shoot the idea down. So I think this was where the idea came from that that Britain Britain might supply the Royal Navy might break the blockade. I mean, you know, that ain't going to happen, quite frankly. I mean, definitely isn't going to happen. But this idea that that you might try and get through the blockade was raised with the with the West Western officials, and and they said, look, at the moment, um, anything that happens in that part of the Black Sea has to have the permission of Russia. Now, Russia, as we've seen from Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson for the uh, Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry, they've, uh, he said, yeah, well, that, that's entirely possible as soon as you uh, lay off on the sanctions. So it's going nowhere at the moment, this, this idea. There are other, other routes to try and, get, uh, try and get goods and the food out. Um, rail and road, they are much, it's possible, but they are much less efficient than, um, than coming out by sea. So at the moment we we are we know it's going nowhere really, and this idea of 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 a naval blockade or breaking the naval blockade just just simply simply isn't possible. Um, it needs Russia's. Uh, well, I mean, I hate to use the term, term permission, but that's effectively effectively what it is. They they can strike. 
they can strike what they what they want merchant shipping wise uh, in that area um, they would probably claim that they'd hit a ukrainian mine to di- divert um, blame but at the moment yeah the, the the desire is there but the any practical solutions are just just going nowhere and roland what's the view from ukraine on this i'm not really sure to be honest because i've been i've just been thinking about kind of shells flying around but i'm I'm curious about what the Russians have actually said. Like, how does this blockade actually operate? Have they actually said, maybe you guys know this, it's, it's, a, it's a question that's been lacking. Have they actually said, we are going to sink any ship that tries and runs into Odessa or not? Or is it just their presence that, and the implicit threat that causes you know, third country flagged merchantmen not to take the risk? And yeah. is it, is it, is it isn't it's, it's the latter. It's, it's the implied threat, the implicit threat. I mean, Russia very... I mean, on the one hand, they, they come out and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, you know, it's, we're, the, we're the greatest. And everyone looks at them and goes, come on, mate, you're rolling out T-62s from, from your reserve stocks, for God's sake. But then on the other hand, they, they do a lot of stuff implicitly. Um, I mean, like that, that comment I just made from, from Dmitry Peskov saying, of course, it's entirely possible to negotiate safe passage for maritime traffic as soon as uh, the NATO and Western-inspired sanctions are lifted. I mean, the, there's the implied threat in there. Um, so there, there is not this blockade. It's not sort of uh, you know, ships, ships in a in a long line, physically barring anyone from moving in the North Sea. Eh, sorry, in the in the Black Sea. Um, it doesn't have to be like that. It, it, it is entirely possible to threaten from um, Crimea and and air launch munitions that might come from mainland Russia. So they don't physically have to have. Uh, uh, ships lined up and submarines surfacing and and then going away and etc cetera, etc cetera, for the threat to be known um and and of course you know you, you don't need a huge amount of threat here for insurance companies to say well mm, we're not going to take the risk we're not going to insure that maritime vessel and for the companies and the skippers on those on those ships to think it's just not worth not worth the risk i mean we have we have seen this happen there have been merchant early on in the war weeks ago uh, merchant shipping was was sunk. Now we don't know at the time. It was suggested it, that, that they'd hit mines in the um, in the northwest portion of the Black Sea, but we, we don't know. But it it is entirely uh, feasible to to reach these areas uh, without having to have a very large naval presence. And of course, Russia doesn't want to have a very large naval presence in that area because they, the last time they did that, they they lost the Moskva frigate to a couple of Neptune missiles. So that's largely kept them out, but they're, they're able to able to uh, to wield a credible threat. Mm. The only thing I'd add to that, actually, because I just realised, I mean, you can feel the the evidence of the blockade, the, the inability to export and harvest. You can see it here. I mean, I was at a, I suppose on the battlefield, it's a bit different. It's more to do with kind of um, you know the difficulties of actually operating an an agricultural industry under fire, but. Um, you know, I was in I was in a farm basically on the front the other day with stacks warehouse a warehouse full of sunflower seeds and a warehouse full of full of grain um, just sitting there beginning to rot. Um, so it is it is. I mean, I mean, it's it's not just the story that you know you see with the. I find this about kind of export stories. You know, X million tons of whatever. I mean, it's it is happening. Um, all this all this stuff is stacking up and and not getting out. And it is going to be a big issue for Ukraine, actually. Thanks, Roland, and thanks, Dom, for commenting on that. Just a couple more things I think we should talk about before we sum up. Uh, Louis Ashworth, I know you wanted to talk about the strength of the ruble. What's happening there? 
Well, this is actually yeah, on the on the on the news side of economics here. We've had this morning the central bank of Russia has cut interest rates by three percentage points, so down from fourteen percent to eleven percent. Um, this is basically so. I, I'm sure you remember at the beginning of the conflict, David. There was uh, in reaction to the initial Western sanctions, the ruble took a complete dive. So, so the ruble before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, a, a single US dollar would get you about seventy-five rubles. Um, Within about a week after the conflict started, it was about 140 rubles, so roughly a sort of 50% drop. Um, it then rapidly came back in the coming weeks, and uh, this was sort of noted, you know, the rubles recovered very quickly. It didn't stop then. It's kept going. It's continued getting stronger, and uh, we're at a point now where it's about, um, you get about 63-ish rubles. It's varied a bit over the last couple of days um, for for a dollar. Um and what we're seeing here from the Central Bank of Russia, um, by acting to cut interest rates, what you do uh, when a central bank cuts interest rates, it tends to reduce the value of its domestic currency because it makes it less lucrative for investors to hold that currency. It's, it's not generating as much interest passively. Um, it becomes it, it weakens the currency. So what we're seeing here from the Central Bank of Russia um, is, is an action to try and take some of the heat out of that ruble rally. And this is uh, quite an interesting sort of dynamic going on here because... When the ruble first recovered, um, uh, its recovery was seen as a sign of of Russian resilience. Um, it was seen as a sign that you know Fortress Russia, because of this export power it has, um, was was able to sort of shield itself and, and regather itself despite the sort of unprecedented financial onslaught that the West unleashed against Russia. Um, the trouble is. If it keeps going up, it starts to create new problems for Russia. So, one of the reasons that it's going up is Russia has, has always been a country. Well, not always, in, in recent years, has been a country that that has had a very steady um, fiscal, uh, very steady fiscal arrangement. It's run budget surpluses regularly. It's very fiscally conservative, um, and it's it's been able to do that because it's always had a very strong trade surplus, which is because it sells so much oil and gas to the rest of the world. Now, if you can think about what we've seen happen since the start of the conflict. That that trade dynamic has been turned up a, a whole other notch, because Russia's energy exports are worth huge amounts because of the the rise in energy prices that we've seen, while at the same time imports are plunging because nobody wants to sell anything to the to the to the Russians anymore. I mean, one of the one of the most as much as we can talk about sort of Western government sanctions about asset freezing about oligarchs, one of the most meaningful sanctions that's been levelled against. Um, against Russia is not from a government. It's from shipping companies deciding that they didn't want the reputational damage of sell of, of shipping things to, to Russia. So you know, big companies like, like like Maersk, for instance, that has had a profound effect. That has hugely knocked imports into Russia. And as much as we talk about Russia as this resilient, um, self reliant economy, they need they need shipments from from the West for all kinds of things like. You know, if ranging right from some kinds of technology and machinery through to things like luxury goods that they used to bring in. So, as a result of that boom in exports and the fall in imports, you've actually seen Russia's Russia's trade surplus. I, I believe it's fifty eight billion in the first quarter, which is is um, is the highest in in a long time. I think at least at least two decades. Um, and and what that serves to do is strengthen the ruble hugely, and. The, the trouble is when you're an exporting nation is you normally want your currency to be uh, to be weaker so that when you bring in uh, when you bring in foreign foreign currency for what you're selling 
it's more it's more lucrative at home. You can you can do more with the money at home. It, it, it buys you more domestically. Um, that dynamic has become has become uh, obviously uh, bad for Russia because because the ruble is so strong, and so it's creating a, a difficult dynamic and uh, a sort of conundrum for the Kremlin because on the one hand they have this sort of symbolic victory, they have ruble strength. It's something that if you're you know, if you're Vladimir Putin, it's a very easy thing to say to the population is look how well the ruble's doing. Aren't we doing fantastically? Our economy is strong. But actually, it's it's going to cause problems for their economy. It's going to it's going to to um to weaken them. And on top of that, the the benefits that you normally have of a strong ruble um for sort of your everyday Russian, which might be, you know, their money goes a bit further if they're buying things from abroad, uh, that effect is is much less beneficial if nobody's selling you anything. It's it's all very well having a ruble that's that's at its strongest point in in um you know uh, half a decade. Um, but if you can't actually buy anything with that because no one will sell you anything, it becomes a lot less uh, a lot less beneficial. So it's an interesting dynamic. We've seen the Central Bank of Russia actually, so that the meeting it had today to to cut interest rates was brought forward by two weeks. Um, so it shows they're working on something of an emergency footing here. And also uh, Moscow has tried to um, reel in some of the capital controls that it introduced early on in the conflict. All of this is an effort to try and take out some of that heat from under the ruble. The question is whether they're going to be able to maintain that because they have a certain amount of ammunition, but there's no reason to believe that anytime soon that trade problem is going to go away. So this could become a long-running issue for Vladimir Putin if if the if the ruble is sort of uh, boiling over um, for for the foreseeable months. Thank you very much, Louis. Just one more thing I think we should talk about briefly before we sum up. Can we can we discuss? The, this decree that Vladimir Putin has signed, which simplifies the process for residents of Herzon and Zaporizhia, both both occupied, um, the decree simpl- simplifies the process to acquire Russian citizenship and get passports, and has been people think it marks a further step towards the Russification of the two regions. Um, Dom and Roland, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it, Roland would know better than I, but I, th- I think this is a logical extension of what we've what we've seen already in in um, since 2014. They've tried to roll this out in uh, Luhansk and, and Donetsk. I'm not sure the, of the statistics about how how popular it's been, but it again it just ties into this narrative that actually the whole thing all along was there to uh, was to liberate Putin's words, liberate the um, the Russian speaking people from the yoke of the uh, Ukrainian Nazis and drug dealers. So unsurprising. Um, I don't know how many people will take it up. I don't know how many people. Will be able to take it up of their own free will or, or with their own free will say no thank you um, and as I say it's a continuation of a process that, that started in, in um, the Donbass in 2014 but I'm sure Roland will, will be able to expand more Yeah I mean that's pretty much it I mean passportization, use of rubles, Russian television I mean look, this war from the get go has been a war of conquest um, let's just let, let, let's just lay aside all this stuff about um, NATO security concerns and blah blah blah. And maybe in the heads of people like Vladimir Putin, all that stuff is basically different sides of the same coin. But strip it back. The reality is, this is a war of imperial conquest. This the idea was to conquer Ukraine, and that's what he's doing. He's going to annex those areas. Um, in you know, in that, well, de facto, he's going to annex it. Whether he whether it becomes part of Russia, it looks like it probably will. I think, um, or he institutes more kind of so called republics. Um, I don't know, but that that's the game, um, and that you know it has implications for the future of the war as well because um, the Russians are digging in on that southern front. We haven't heard much about the southern front, but 
it's quiet. The, the Russians are, are digging in to stay um, and rooting them out is going to be difficult if the Ukrainians ever kind of manage to, to get around to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I broadly agree with Dom. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't surprise me um, whatsoever. And I'd expect to see it in, in any land the Russians can, can kind of take and hold. And I'm sure if they had succeeded in taking Kiev or Kharkiv earlier in the war, um, we'd have seen um, a similar thing on a much grander scale. Well, thank you, Roland and Dom. So I think it's uh, I think we've probably got to the end of our time here. Uh, so Louis and Dom, can I have your final thoughts? And then Roland, would you would you like to take the the, the um, we'll, we'll have you last. We'll have your, you live from the Donbass uh, to wrap up the episode. So Louis and Dom first. What are your what should our audience be thinking about in the next uh, few days? Well, it's going to be interesting to continue to see the fallout from the, the from the food crisis. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we are seeing more actions uh, in the coming days and weeks uh, in the in the region of export bans, export controls, countries attempting to sort of shore up their own domestic food supplies, um, and uh, that's going to be something that the world will push back against. Um, and and there will be a lot of opposition to that, but it's going to be a very hard move to resist because uh, ultimately, you know. Governments, first and foremost, care about domestic issues, and uh, uh, the consequences of that are going to be are going to be very, very severe for for those countries that are less less uh, able to be self sufficient on food. So, we'll see how that develops. It's it's been a really hot topic at, at Davos, um, food security, and and the sort of food crisis that we're seeing. Um, David Malpass, uh, head of the um, World Bank is giving a speech on it this afternoon, so it'll be interesting to see as well what he says, because obviously uh, he'll take a very interesting global perspective, I'm sure, on on the sort of issues that are emerging there. So I think that issue is is just just beginning to unfold, really. And for me, I think it's worth keeping an eye on the fallout that's still carrying on from um, Kissinger's comments and from that uh, the the opinion piece in the New York Times earlier in the in the week talking about. Ukraine must get real and, and, and accept it's got to give up territory for peace. Um, these ideas, basically, that, that Kissinger's view there is that that's just, that's just old, out, outdated, outmoded, just, just doesn't bear any relation to the modern world where the values have been so, um, so egregiously assaulted. Um, and I was, I was actually just, just before this, this uh, podcast, I was speaking to uh, Kusti Salm, who's the Estonian Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Defence, about these very issues. He was very, very punchy, and he was saying that there is, there is no... We were talking about what a win means for Ukraine and whether a win for Ukraine is the same as a defeat for, for Russia or if there's something subtly different in there. But he was basically saying that, that for, for Ukraine, um, there is no... It's got to be about it's got to be about territory. The economy's been destroyed. The infrastructure's been destroyed. A quarter of the, the population have been um, uprooted and, and have had to flee the country. So he said, "There's only a military outcome. That is the only win Ukraine can go for. Just a military outcome, which I thought was quite quite punchy." Um, and he also said that um, that NATO in the, the NATO meeting in June. Uh, in Madrid, 20, 29th, 30th of June in Madrid, NATO has got to take this decision to move from a posture of deterrence by punishment to deterrence by denial. And what it means is deterrence by punishment, having a light force along the border and saying to Russia, basically, um, don't step over that. If you invade us, there will be consequences. He said, that's no good. He don't want to be invaded and then start talking about, about getting uh, pushing them out. He said, you need to move to a posture of deterrence by denial, whereby they are so so convinced that it would not be worth their worth their weight um worth worth invading that they don't do it and he said to do that we need to massively up up gun the whole place and he was talking about estonia hosting a new 
NATO Land Force Headquarters, divisional size headquarters uh, to Estonia to, to host. Um, Britain have a, got a lot of troops in Estonia at, at the moment. He, he didn't go as far as to saying he'd, he'd wish them to, to stay, but he, he, he would be reluctant to see them go. I think it was as strong as he'd, as he'd get. But I thought it was very interesting that Estonia now offering to host a new NATO land headquarters. But I'll hopefully get some more time tomorrow to talk about, um, uh, about the view from Estonia. But no, a great chat there with, uh, with Mr. Salm. Thank you, Louis. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Roland, would you like the final words? I think you've got to be watching what's happening in Donbass. Um, all, all of this stuff that you know that that, that Don was talking about, and, and that we've been talking about about you know sentiment, money, the kind of international opinion. Should should the Ukrainians get real? Like ceasefires, peace. It's always decided on the battlefield, um, which is why when you hear people saying, you know, kind of wringing their hands and saying, "Oh, we just need to talk things through," well, no, you talk on the battlefield. And what you do is you kill as many of the other person as possible until they can't fight or you've both exhausted yourselves and then the talks play, uh, take place. I mean, that's what happened here. I watched it happen in 2014. The Russians inflicted a devastating uh, defeat on the Ukrainians and then they dictated the peace terms, which was the Minsk peace agreement, which, you know, long story. And now here we are today. Um, that's what's going on here. Um, if, if, if this battle goes the Russians' way... Um, the Russians will be hoping that it puts them in a much better position to 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 get to these eventual talks, and that you know opinion in the West and in, amongst Ukraine's allies will will be will be moved by that, um, and the Ukrainians will be are hoping to inflict as much attrition on the Russians as possible in the process um, in order to resist that, and then eventually, and there is talk around here of the great coming summer counteroffensive. Um, possible? Will it happen? That's the narrative that we're waiting for. Um, so I, I don't. I just don't think like we can expect the fighting to be done anytime soon. It's going to run throughout the year. Um, but but both sides have a lot invested in the impression that their battlefield success is making um, uh, on 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 other countries um, and on the world. And um, I mean, it sounds a little bit. It's a little bit hackneyed, I suppose, but. Um, it just means more destruction and, and, and frankly, you know, more artillery flying around and more more people in pieces, quite honestly. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.